Hello, and welcome to the Commander Theory Podcast. I'm Nick Beatman, and today I've got a very special guest, Ethan Fleischer. Ethan was the winner of the second Great Designer Search. He led the vision design for Kaldheim, and he's the current representative for Blue in the Council of Colors within Wizards of the Coast's R&D. Welcome to the show, Ethan. Thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, well, today we're going to be talking about Blue in Commander, its strengths, its weaknesses, its power level relative to the other colors, and how Wizards is working to balance the color within the limits of the modern color pie. But before we get into the topic of Blue and Commander, can you tell me what it means to be the Blue representative on the Council of Colors? What is the Council, and what are the responsibilities of your position? The Council of Colors is a group of magic designers that dresses up in color-coded robes and... (laughs) reviews every magic set to make sure that effects that should appear in one color don't appear in another color and vice versa. It's very important for the health of the game that players have to play different colors to get different types of effects. Otherwise, deck building becomes a uh, uninteresting proposition. As far as my role, I'm the blue member of the uh, council, so I'm responsible for looking at all the blue cards. For a long time, Mark Rosewater, who's the uh, the head designer for Magic, used to do all of this. But with the increased pace of releases, it just became impossible for him to keep a keep an eye on the color pie, as well as design a bunch of Magic sets and do the you know sort of PR type work that he does, uh, write his article every week, and uh, so he set up this council. So he's the head of the council. And there are five other members for each color. We have a colorless member, and Mark Gottlieb is also on the council uh, as a uh, senior advisor. Very interesting. So in addition to looking over the cards, are you also looking at uh, ways to explore Blue's design space? That is true. We, we are always looking for new opportunities to expand colors in areas where we feel like the game would benefit from them expanding. The color pie is always evolving, and trying to direct that evolution is a lot of what we do on the Council of Colors. Uh, how has Blue's color pie changed in recent years? What are, what are some of the ways it's evolving? Blue's pie hasn't changed a great deal in the last few years. I would say that the largest change for Blue has been uh, with the increased focus on creature-centric decks over the last quite a few years now, it's been necessary to find new ways for Blue to interact with creatures in a way that uh, you know allows you to, to disrupt your opponent in some way. So we've been experimenting with a variety of different ways of doing that over the last few years. Interesting. That, that actually uh, leads me to something I wanted to ask about Kaldheim, because it seemed to me that Kaldheim's Blue removal was outside the norms of what we typically see in the color we saw taking damage to get a better rate for an effect as on Bind the Monster. Uh, and we also saw transformation type removal that hits non-creature permanence like on Raven Form. So can you tell me a little bit about these experiments and if there's something that we might see more of in the future? I think these are two pretty distinct types of uh, removal. Bind the Monster is a top-down design because Kaldheim is based on Norse mythology. One of the famous stories from Norse uh, mythology is when they bound the Fenrir wolf. And 
part of that involved sticking some a god having to stick his hand inside the wolf's mouth to like <laughs> let the wolf know it's going to be okay. We'll we'll untie you. Don't worry about it. And then uh, it was like, no, psych. We're we're not going to untie you. So he got his hand bit off. Uh, so that was that was the reason for binding the monsters' damage dealing, which which normally, as you say, we don't see that in blue very often. So when we're reviewing a set, we're watching out for what we call breaks, which are serious strategic violations that shore up the weaknesses of a color in a way that is going to permanently damage magic. And then uh, the other thing that we're looking for are what we call bends, where we're sort of doing it a little bit differently. And if that bend is not being done for a justifiable reason, then that can be a problem. Please change it. But if the bend is for a thematically appropriate reason, then it's like, okay, this is this is a an appropriate bend, a thematically appropriate bend. Uh, so in an artifact set, for instance, a black card might bring artifacts back from the graveyard to hand, which normally black can't do that. But in an artifact set, everyone needs to interact with artifacts in some way. And that's that's a way that we've decided that black can uh, interact with artifacts. So for, for Bind the Monster, this was uh, this told a story from Norse mythology that we really liked, and so this was a thematic bend on creative grounds that uh, we don't believe is going to cause any serious damage to Magic's strategic balance. Ultimately, it's a it's a limited card that's it's okay, it's fine, but I don't think it's going to cause serious problems. Raven form, however, is quite different. So this is a card that. Uh, exiles an artifact or a creature and gives that creature's or artifact's controller a 1-1 bird token. So this is something that we've experimented with a bit over the years in various sets. I think Pongify was probably the first blue card that did something like this. And Ravenform was, was particularly noteworthy in that it could do it to artifacts as well. We had a lot of discussions about Raven form both before and after the release of the set. And I think we've come to the conclusion that we we probably shouldn't have printed that card the way it was and not planning to print any more cards along those lines in the future at this time. Like, as I say, it's constantly evolving. We may change our mind again, but uh, right now we're, we're thinking that uh, we'd like to keep those kinds of effects in um, you know probably more often on white cards. Gotcha. Uh, thank you for the, those insights. But you mentioned Pongify, and I just want to talk about that kind of effect a little bit more, because Pongify, rapid hybridization, reality shift, these types of transformation, transformation type removal that we see in blue. Um, you know, most of them haven't seen a ton of play in, in like standard or in other constructed formats, but in Commander. Um, they all uh, see a ton of play. Rapid Hybridization and Pongify rank among the top 50 most played blue cards in Commander, according to EDHREC, and Reality Shift is actually among the top 15 blue cards. So all three of them see play in more decks than pretty much every Black Doomblade variant. So it sort of begs the question of like, how should blue spot removal fare compared to other colors? And when you're designing these types of transformation style removal, you need to think about like how they balance out in Commander. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, when when Pongify and Rapid Hybridization were created initially, Commander was not a very popular format. It wasn't played very much uh, relative to how it is now. 
and Standard was far more popular than Commander. And so they were balanced for Standard and for Limited, where a 3-3 creature with no abilities is... I'm not saying you would play a 3-3 with no abilities in a Standard deck, but it remains a reasonable threat that's worthy of consideration, right? In a, in a format where you have one opponent who has 20 life, three, a 3-3 three, three creature can't just be ignored. But in Commander, where everyone has three opponents with 40 life, a 3-3 three, three creature with no abilities is just, it's, it's, it's laughable. It's nothing, right? You don't, you don't have to worry about that, really, unless you're, unless you're down to two life, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, just an illustration of how the power level of different cards is very contextual. And as Commander has become more and more popular to the point where it's the most popular magic format, yeah, of course, we have to pay much more attention to how cards are going to impact Commander because that's the way Magic is played by more people than than any of the other formats. Gotcha. Philosophically, how do you think blue spot removal should fare compared to the other colors? Oh, I mean, it should be in fourth place, I would say. I, I think that you know green should be even worse than blue. But theoretically, if everything was you know built from the ground up and we designed all of all of magic all at once, black would be the best at spot removal, uh, and then probably red, and then probably white after that, and then blue, and then green. But because we you know release different cards in different sets that are often years apart from each other, those cards are never compared to each other in standard, right? We've never seen Lightning Bolt and Fatal Push in the same standard together. And so there's not been an opportunity to compare those two cards except in Modern, right? Mm -hmm. Where we see that both of those see quite a lot of play. But uh, neither one of those cards, contextually, is that strong in Commander just because so many of the creatures in Commander are large enough that they can't be destroyed by either of those cards. Gotcha. I want to ask you... We see that Rapid Hybridization and Pungify is one example of a card that is more or less powerful depending on the context. How do the rules of Commander affect Blue's strengths and weaknesses? Well, there are uh, the rules of Commander, I think, tend to favor Blue in a lot of ways because Blue really has a, an advantage over a long game where you make lots of decisions and have a lot of turns because when you have 40 life for each opponent that's you know if you're if you have three opponents that's 120 life that you have to take down now hopefully your opponents are hitting each other as well but uh this situation creates a game with a lot of turns usually so that's to the disadvantage of more aggressive colors like red or white and to the advantage of a color that can really build up a lot of resources over time the way blue can. Blue is the best color at drawing cards, and so you can really draw a lot of extra cards over the, over the course of the game, and that can make a huge difference as far as your, uh, your chances for winning. Gotcha. I want to ask, a lot of the, what we see of blue in Commander and a lot of its most iconic effects in the format, uh, like counter spells, permanent stealing, and clones can be seen as more unfun by casual players because they punish people who are trying to do big splashy things or who want to play big powerful permanents. If you are like a green player and you, you spend eight mana for a Vorinclex and your opponent's able to copy it with, with four mana for their clone, 
or steal it for four mana with their control magic. It just makes it feel like like you're disincentivized to do big, fun things. Um, how does R&D design blue cards that stay true to its color pie while creating more fun gameplay? Yeah, we have been cognizant of that sort of pattern where blue punishes people for playing cool cards, right? You put a bunch of resources in this card and we, we're we now going to punish you in some way, either by by stealing it or copying it uh, or just countering it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the The sort of worst example of that to my mind is the card bribery that allows you just go through an opponent's deck and pick the most busted card out of it and play it for free so uh (laughs) which like it's just it's just not a good incentive uh when i'm designing for commander i try to think about more proactive effects like what's a cool thing that this deck can do with the cards that are in it and you know what's a what's a cool combo that i can put together or what's a what's a thing that hasn't been done before? Um, so we've been making like more efficient, you know, to to talk to your your specific examples of counter spells, for example. In general, uh, I feel like we don't need a lot of new counter spells that are aimed at commander. I think that you know people who want to play counter spells have plenty of choices. So usually when we're making counter spells, we're making it for the more competitive formats uh, because that's the type of player that's more likely to enjoy counter spells. So we tend to make counter spells that are a little more challenging to decide whether, you know, when are you going to sideboard this card in? Who, which deck are you playing it against? Uh, because in general, the player who likes counter spells also likes to make lots of decisions and kind of outthink their opponent and has a, has a competitive mindset. So we try to optimize those for that kind of player. Uh, for clones, a lot of our clones lately have been cloning your own thing. So you can still make some sort of strange combo where you're getting multiple copies of something to do something unusual. But um, it's less likely to punish an opponent for doing something cool. And that just allows us to make them more efficiently costed for, from a mana perspective also. or Put some extra cool little effects on it. Uh, what was the other one that you? Oh, stealing things. Yes. Yeah, we we don't we try not to do that too much anymore. We do it a little bit, but um, in general, we try to aim those those cards more at competitive play. Also, gotcha. Yeah, thank you for that that insight. I want to ask a bit about the commander precons. You've been really heavily involved in them over the years, uh, leading Commander 2014, Commander 2016. Uh, and most recently, Commander 2020. What do you see as the purpose of those those slots in the Commander precons for new cards? Um, are they mostly intended to add, well, to add staple effects to the formats? Are they there to bolster the deck's theme? Are they there to just sort of explore multiplayer design space that you can't really hit upon in most standard sets? What do you see as the the purpose for those slots? Yeah, the the purpose of those slots has evolved a lot over the course of my career at Wizards. At first, there were a lot of kind of staple effects that we thought the format needed in order to be a little healthier to give people deck building options. Uh, so you see some like a lot of mana fixing options, for example, uh, in the early commander decks. 
Also, mm-hmm. we were worried that the product wouldn't sell uh, in those those for those early decks, and so you'll also see some some designs aimed at vintage and legacy, which all of those cards are are legal in vintage and legacy. You know, some of those designs were more successful than others, both you know on a on a power level standpoint, but also like an appropriateness standpoint. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think that True Name Nemesis has improved the world of legacy by existing, but like. Maybe Containment Priest has. So that was sort of the early stages. But as we've gotten to the point where we are now, we're, we're tying these decks to our main booster releases. So they, they follow the same themes as the main booster releases and have the same creative treatment. And, and it also, like, the power level of Commander has risen considerably. There are enough staples that you can play any colored deck you know the the format doesn't need that kind of help anymore. In fact, making more staple effects, I think, is is actually just harmful to the format. So, we're focusing much more on enabling people to build thematic decks, particularly ones that maybe weren't possible before, uh, or that were very very poorly optimized before. It's like okay, you have you don't have quite enough ingredients to build a vehicle deck or whatever and maybe we would do a vehicle uh commander pre-constructed deck at some point and give people the additional tools that they would want to uh to build such a deck and make it a little more optimized i know it's it's i know it's been less than a year since its release but i was hoping um to ask a couple questions specifically about commander 2020 do you say that would you say that the experiment of tying the precons to a standard release and and a specific world has been successful? Do you think that's something that's going to continue on into the future? Yeah, I, I do. I feel like it's a sustainable direction uh, just because all of these sets are going to have different themes from each other, uh, at least the ones that are you know near to each other in standard. And that gives us a lot of sort of options for different decks and by by sort of narrowing in on a theme that's in a standard set usually that means that there's some support that we can find outside of that set uh for reprint cards because you know more there are way more reprints in a commander pre-constructed deck than there are new cards finding the there there are some themes like the mutate theme would be something that would be pretty hard to do if we didn't have enough new cards in the product Mm -hmm. right because there's no mutate cards outside of ikoria but yeah in general i i feel like it's a it's a successful direction and it's a sustainable direction and it kind of helps us to to find themes that otherwise you know we would we might end up going further and further out into wacky land and trying to always chase something that's completely novel and you can do that for a while, but after a while, you end up chasing into things that people don't actually want to do. Gotcha. Well, I, I really like the a lot of the effects that tying it that tying the precons to a specific set has had. It's great that it can take the pressure off the legends in the main set to all be commander playable. It's great that it can ensure that everyone who's really excited about a mechanic in the set is able to easily translate that into commander. But one thing that has been lost in in tying the precons to a specific set is the sort of creative freedom to explore different places in the multiverse and maybe print versions of characters that hadn't seen play before. Or is Wizards going to be looking to 
other products to sort of fill that need going forward? Yeah, it's definitely something that we're, you know, it's on my mind as as somebody who is a big fan of all the old lore in the stories. Um, you know, I, I have a whole list of characters that I'd like to see in card form at some point. So as, as we saw recently with Commander Legends, you know, there are other outlets for that kind of thing but yes it it is certainly it is certainly a thing that is lost by uh doing the decks in this way where they're tied to the the creative of a plane that maybe we've never seen before gotcha i also want to circle back to something you'd mentioned a bit earlier you said that it isn't really the the goal of the the new cards in the commander precons to be staples anymore that that printing staples in those slots um, you think is a detriment how well upon hearing that it's hard not to bring up like fierce guardianship and some of the other free spell cycle that we saw in that set can you tell me a little bit about the the thought process behind the decision to print those cards in the precons yeah i mean i i do think that you know i as that those fall into that category of staples and our philosophy has evolved, I would say, since then, so that to the point where I, I don't feel like those are appropriate anymore. It's a okay. simple answer, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gotcha. Yeah, like if I was if I was making that product now, I wouldn't put something like that in there, I would say. You mentioned that in the earlier versions that sometimes cards would be put in, like powerful cards would be put in because they were worried that the product wouldn't sell. Did that influence the decision to put these into the, the set in any way? Well, I mean, we we do want to make cards that people want to own, but we we also, yeah, I guess the, the things that I was talking about earlier were cards aimed at vintage and legacy, cards specifically positioned to be strong in those formats that weren't necessarily designed with commander gameplay first and foremost. So that sort of thing, is you know at this point commander is vastly more popular than vintage or legacy uh, and there's no and and also these pre-constructed decks are very popular they we've found that they sell very well just aimed at commander players for commander play and obviously there needs to be some strong cards that people want to own otherwise why would they buy the the product that's just the way magic works but uh we're trying to find ways to make those cards more, more, a little more thematically narrow. So it's like, oh, I need this for my elemental deck, but not I need this for every blue commander deck I'm playing. Gotcha. I also want to ask you um, about your time working on Commander Legends. And if you think this is a product we might see once every couple of years, like a Modern Horizons, is this a, pro- is this a one-time product? Is this... Could this be a yearly thing? How do you see um, Commander Legends and how frequently do you think we'll get these commander-focused draft formats in the future? Yeah, uh, so I was on both the vision design team and the set design team for Commander Legends. So I I saw most of uh, the design process as it went down. It's a very difficult type of product to design just because... So many, so much of the institutional knowledge that we have about what what makes a good magic set kind of has to be thrown out the window when you're making something for such an unusual format where you're playing usually four players. Everyone has a commander. Oh my goodness! Everyone has forty life. Just so, and the and the set is huge, right? It's is bigger than a normal set. So mm-hmm. it's it it means that we kind of have to rethink everything we're doing all the time 
Whereas normally there are sort of certain pole stars that are like, okay, that's true north. We don't need to worry about where true north is. We have the compass. It's fine. So from a design standpoint, they're very challenging. You know, ultimately, how often we're going to see that type of product will depend on what the sales were for the product. And, you know, we, we've seen most of the sales that we're likely to see at this point for Commander Legends, but it is, it is still, uh, you know, a product that's on sale uh, that was released fairly recently. So we don't have the complete picture on that. And even if we did, I probably couldn't talk about it on a podcast. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, as, as with most new type of products, you know, if players buy a lot of it, we're likely to make something similar again in the future. And if they don't, then it will go the way of premium deck series or what have you. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thank you for, for that insight. I do think one of the challenges of uh, Commander Legends is the are the partners, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I I get very nervous when I think about making any more partners than have already been made, just because you know every every partner you introduce, you know has has combinatorics with every other partner you've ever made, and so the more partners we make, the larger the chances of some broken combo between two partners appearing that we overlooked, and it damages the format in some way. So finding other solutions uh, other than partner is something that I think about quite a bit when I think about potential future Commander Legends style products. Yeah, that I um, that makes total sense to me. I think the the total number of partner combinations is something around 1,500 at this point. And I I mean, I I don't see how you could easily balance for that with the amount of staffing power you have over there at Wizards. Like it's it's very difficult for me to wrap my head around even a fraction of that number. So I I can see why you'd be wary. Yeah, definitely definitely one of the things that keeps me up late at night. Too many partners. Well, I wanted to ask you, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? We've talked about a lot today, Blue and Commander, Commander Precons, Commander Legends. Um, What else would you like to to tell our listeners? Yeah, um, just that uh, I've really enjoyed working on on Magic, but also just working on Commander. It's my favorite format by far, and I've had so many opportunities to work on it and see the format grow and become more and more popular. And I always knew in my heart that it was the greatest format, but seeing it become the most popular format has been very gratifying. And uh, helping to introduce new people to the format by making all these pre-constructed decks is one of my favorite things to do at Wizards. Awesome. Uh, and feel Okay, I've got another question for you. Feel free uh, not to answer this. Um, if you could make any change to the commander format, what would it be? If I could make any change, I would change the way that hybrid mana costs work in commander. You know, I was talking about my, my nervousness about partners and, uh, one of the really easy ways to solve that for me as a designer would be to just make hybrid mana, uh, legendary creatures and put them in a product like that. And if uh, hybrid mana worked differently within the uh, color identity rule, then that would make my life as a designer a lot easier, I have to say. Interesting. Very, very cool. Well, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they'd like to continue this conversation? Right. I'm on Twitter 
My Twitter handle is at Ethan Fleischer, and I'm always happy to chat with fans about Magic or Commander or the color blue. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, it's been a really enlightening conversation, and I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Hey, guys. It's Zach. I hope you didn't miss me too much on this episode. I'm dropping in to say two things. The first is that we do have video podcasts now. If you're listening to this, that is something you might want to check out. They're really cool. Uh, we're working really hard on them. And if you have any feedback, please let us know because we are still learning and growing and making some cool stuff. And we're doing it with your support. So the other thing is that I would like to thank all of our amazing patrons who help us out and support the show. So thank you to Gustav, Ryan, Mark, Amond, Addison, Mason, Rick, Laser, Raphael, Charlotte, The White Clays, Hannah, Anthony, Andy, Dylan, James, Justin, Logan, Roger, Evan, Bryce, Dylan, Benjamin, Jamie, Matthew, Jason, Kyle, Brandon, Kaidel, Jeremy, Russell, Troy, Dylan, Walter, Leo, Ian, John, John, and Tom. Thank you all so much for being patrons. Thank you all for supporting the show. Um, I will be back on the episode next week with Nick, and I hope you really enjoyed this interview. I really did, and I'm really excited for the next ones. So uh, just have a good time, happy brewing, and we'll talk to you all later. Bye. If any of you theorists want to get in touch with us, I am at Commander Theory on Twitter and Tumblr, and Zach is at Fat Bartleby on Twitter. Our theme song is Lincoln Continental by Entropy, and you can check them out on SoundCloud. Until next time, we're going back to the drawing board. <laughs>